The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, put on your iHeartPop podcast shirt and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 362 with guest James Kovacs, recorded live Wednesday, June 25th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web Application. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who wants to open up a can of whoop-ass on cute little backwoods cliches like that one... Carl Franklin. Speakers in my living room. NASA complains about the sonic boom. Hi, this is Carl Franklin. Thanks a lot. You're listening to .NET Rocks. Richard will join us in a minute. Of course, he's uh, flying around the world doing a whole bunch of stuff. I think he went to Bulgaria, then he's in Germany, and ending up in the Galapagos Islands for a little vacation. So let's just get right into Better Know Framework. So today I want to talk about the system.obsolete attribute, and then what it's used to, uh, for is to decorate types and members of types that are obsolete and will cause compiler warnings to be generated if that type is uh, has the attribute. And uh, you see it all the time in uh, deprecated code. Deprecated is one of those crazy words that means no longer used. So when something is deprecated, you put the obsolete tag on it, and it's just a, a nicer way of uh, saying, hey, don't use this anymore, rather than uh, just yanking out the uh, method or the member or the property or whatever and causing all sorts of problems. There it is, system.obsolete, attribute, know it, love it, learn it. Uh, I don't have an email today. Instead, I have uh, a guest in the studio who just happened to stop by, uh, Nick Moldar. Did I pronounce your last name right? Close. Molnar. Molnar. And I swear it sounds like a superhero. Dun, dun, dun. Could, I am Molnar. <laughs> anyway, Nick, you uh, work for Infusion down at Greg Brill's place. That's correct. Down in New York City. 
So you were one of the guys at Sleepless in New York? Yeah, you and I stayed up uh, all night, pulled an all-nighter there, and uh, that was a great experience. We had fun, didn't we? Oh, yeah. It was a blast. Blast. Yeah. The party on the roof in Times Square. <laughs> I, I need to, now that I live in the city, I need to get back up on that rooftop. I need to get Greg to hook me up with uh, that spot. So they hired you? They hired me, yeah. It took me about six months to pack up my life in Florida and get up to New York, but uh, I've been there for a few months now, and it's it's been great. I love it. And you brought your wife along with you? Yeah. My, Any kids? No, my wife, Katie, and our dog, Jacques, which is, ah, he's my son. So Cool. And you live, like, in the city? Yeah, we live in the city. Uh, you know, we, we got a, you know, we're, we're really new there, so we just yeah. got a place, and... Um, but you've, you, so what's cool about this is that Nick was, he just emailed me, he said, uh, I'm going to be doing some consulting at a company locally. Can I stop by and see the studio? And I, I was just about to take you home because it's like two o'clock in the morning here, one o'clock in the morning. I was about to take you back to your apartment and Brandon goes, Hey man, why don't you just have him do the intro with you? So we thought uh, we'd give you your 15 seconds of fame. Yeah. Brandon's awesome. This is the biggest I'm ever going to be. Uh, that's <laughs> not true. That's not true. I'm coming after your car. <laughs> All right. Cool. So uh, you'd recommend the New York tour to anybody who would, you really got a lot out of it is what you're saying. Yeah, I really recommend it. I think Infusion has done a great job of, of really caring for their people, making sure that they're, uh, that they're learning, that they're growing, that they're yeah. working on things that they're interested in. What kind of stuff besides SharePoint have you really uh, tackled? Um, or is that your real focus? So, so far I've been doing a lot of SharePoint in the first four months that I've been here. I've also dabbled with some rich client technologies, right? Like we cool. have, we have some, a lot of Silverlight stuff going on yeah. and some other magical stuff. So uh, the some s- things I can't really talk about Okay. Much. You'd have to kill me. Yeah, probably. How about Surface? That intrigues the hell out of me. Yeah. So, uh, some things I can't talk about much, oh, okay. uh, but yeah, exactly. Well, we know you guys are doing some Surface stuff. And oh, oh, do we? Well then perfect. Yeah. yeah so we have, we have some. So you just tricked me, didn't you? Yeah, we have, yeah. We have some surface stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, it's it's quite interesting. We have all the work going on in Dubai, so there's interesting travel. Dude, I want to go to Dubai, man. You should do it. We should do <laughs> oh, it. No, there's no way. Oh, it's Carl okay, Franklin. I have to bring my kids and everything. Yeah, it's just be a mess. All right, well, let's uh, roll the interview now, which was uh, an interview we did with James Kovacs and uh, Richard and myself, of course. Richard, our guest today is uh, James Kovacs. James is an independent architect, developer, trainer, and jack-of-all-trades specializing in agile development using the .NET framework. He's passionate about helping developers create flexible software using test-driven development, unit testing, object relational mapping, dependency injection, refactoring, continuous integration, and related techniques. He is a founding member of the Plumbers at Work podcast, which is syndicated by MSDN Canada Community Radio. Wow, that's pretty cool. We should yeah, talk about uh, that. John Bristow and uh, and Co. Bunch of troublemakers up in Canada. Bunch of troublemakers. That's right. Yeah, uh, he has published articles uh, in MSDN Magazine. Most recently, "Loosen Up: Tame Your Software Dependencies for More Flexible Apps" in the March 2008 issue. James is a Microsoft Most Valuable Professional for C Sharp Architecture and card, a card-carrying member of Alt.net, a group of software professionals continually looking for more effective ways to develop applications. He received his master's degree from Harvard University. Ah, a brainiac. Ah, yes, a smart guy. And, and let us make no mistake, James Kovac is, is one of the founding members of the N-Hibernate Mafia. That's true. <laughs> we, we called him out in 2006. <laughs> 
How are you, James? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to be here. Wow, you um you have the the list, as it were, of technologies that are hip and cool and and current that people are using today in software. Well, the funny thing is, I I jumped into those technologies before they were hip and cool, uh, and it's because I saw value in them, and I'm glad to see that more people in the community are becoming interested in these types of ideas. And a lot of it is it, what what is old is new again, because sure. a lot of these ideas are filtering over from the Java community and others. Yeah. True. Uh, we're going to talk today about a little inversion of control and aspect-oriented programming, right? That's right. And, you know, part of this show was really, uh, we did an interview with uh, Hamilton uh, a while back uh, on Castle Windsor, and we had technical problems with the recording, which right. was very frustrating because it was a cool show. It was a good show. And uh, and I really wanted, and I realized after we'd done that show that maybe we really need to lay down more foundation of core concepts around this just to sort of set the stage for what Windsor's all about. And I know you're a Windsor fan too, uh, James. So uh, I wanted to start with inversion of control, but I do think, I hope we can get to talk about where Castle plays in the whole equation. Yeah, let's talk about the fundamental, the fundamentals first. So really the fundamentals is looking at your software architecture. Traditionally, we've had very, very tightly coupled software architectures where you have one concrete component talking to another. So you've got your service component, your customer service that talks directly to some data access components. And the problem with that is it's very difficult for those two components to vary independently. So if you want to switch to a different database platform or you want to add in logging or auditing or anything else, it's really you have to tear everything apart and put it all back together. Right. So one of the core concepts came about was the dependency inversion principle, which was popularized by Robert C. Martin. And he states that high-level modules should not depend on the low-level ones, but they should both depend on abstractions. So in more concrete terms, rather than having your customer service depend on your data access component, both of them should depend on some interface or abstract base class, so like an iCustomer repository where the repository is your data access component. So what you've done there is you've essentially decoupled those two components, and all the customer service knows about is that it's talking to some I repository, right. some I component. So you are actually free at runtime to switch that for something else. Yeah. And this introduces a lot of flexibility into your software. Yep, and that's really what it's all about. As, as changes come up, you just want to make sure that you're ultimately flexible. I think a big mistake that a lot of developers make is trying to predict the future in the architecture session, you know, trying to come up with all the different scenarios that could happen and therefore try to architect for them right up front, whereas this approach is let's just architect for flexibility so that when something unknown and unseen comes along, we can adapt quickly. You're absolutely right, Carl. That, that's exactly what we're aiming for. Uh, it's all about focusing on uh, high, highly cohesive architectures and loose coupling between components. It's things that we've talked about for years, and this is a way to get to it. So that's dependency inversion. Tell us what dependency injection is. So what dependency injection is, now you have a, through dependency inversion, you have a high-level component depending on an interface. What you want to be able to do is substitute that at runtime. You can use dependency injection to supply a component's dependencies through its constructor. Typically through its constructor, you can also do setter-based. 
Uh, but typically, so what you do is you'd say new customer service, and one of the first dependencies would be new customer repository. Right. And the dependency is just being any component that is that is uh, accessed during the lifespan of that object. That's right. So it's just some other component that is used by the piece of software that you're currently working with, in this case, the service. So is it as simple as just supplying those dependencies on the constructor? That's exactly it. The other option that a lot of people use is a service locator. What service locator is, in your customer service, in your constructor, you will go to a, walk up to a factory or something and say, hey, create me this dependency of mine. Right. That's an, definitely another way to do it. The problem with that is you don't get very good testability because all of your dependencies are locked away inside of this service, uh. which makes actually testing the service in isolation of the database and everything else very difficult. It's possible, but quite difficult. By having all of your dependencies supplied in your constructor, in your tests, you just supply faked out versions of them. You can use a mocking framework or you can write them yourself. Uh, just right. have some class that implements that interface and supplies default behavior. But that doesn't actually touch databases, doesn't do log logging and auditing and things like that. What it allows you to do is unit test components in isolation. Yes. Now, one of the nice things about this is if software is only used in one place, it typically is fairly inflexible because it's only suited for one purpose. As soon as you have to design it to be used in two different places, it becomes much more flexible. The two different places in this case, is, in this case are tests and production code. So you all of a sudden are gaining a lot of flexibility in your design by thinking about, okay, how am I going to test this? So by, supply, by supplying all of your dependencies in your constructor, there you have a way of easily testing because you can supply mocks or stubs or your own handcrafted fake objects at test time but then have real versions at construction at, in production code. And the other concept, of course, is inversion of control and inversion of control containers. Now, we've talked about this a little bit before on the show, but I got the feeling that it was a little bit unclear, and I really appreciate the clarity of your, your, your brief and very succinct definitions here. So let's define inversion of control. So the way you get to inversion of control containers is you look at, okay, we saw that dependency injection is a good thing. Now you can imagine you've got a chain of dependencies. You've got some UI component that needs to build a service component that needs to get access to a data access component, and each of these things in turn have their own dependencies. So as you go up the chain, all of a sudden you have your, you want to create the repository, so you need to supply its dependencies. You need to create service, so you need to supply the repository and any, any other dependencies. So by the time you hit the UI, the UI has to know about data access components, service components, logging components, auditing components, and that's the wrong place that to be assembling your architecture in your UI. That's what you're trying to get away from. I see. Is having all kinds of logic inside of your UI controls. Sure. So the way you get away from this is you use an inversion of control container. An inversion of control container is nothing more than a factory for components. Because you have to supply all of the dependencies, you want to start from another container that can create those dependencies and then pass them in. So by the time you, so the UI is actually the last thing in the chain. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what 
It is. It sounds really complicated, but that is what it is. What you do is you walk up to the container and you say, hey, I need an iCustomer service. And it says, it looks in, it, in its setup and says, oh, an iCustomer service is this customer service class. This customer service class needs an iCustomer repository, which is the SQL customer repository. It also needs an auditing component. This, And it figures out what all the dependencies are in the chain, constructs them in reverse order, and then supplies you with a fully constructed object at runtime. So it's just a factory for components. Yeah, that makes total sense to me now. And if anybody's ever done any Windows Forms development where you create, you start from a, from a module, from a sub-main, and then you create your form and show it, I mean, that's essentially an inversion of control container, even though you're really not doing a whole lot with, with objects. So you might be, but but that's essentially what this, the same thing instead of just starting with a form. That's, you're basically you're constructing components at runtime. Inversion control containers provide you with a lot of services over and above object construction, but at a fundamental level, that's it. And a lot of people get, it's like, oh, I can't bring in a third-party component into my application. I can't bring in something as big as, like, Castle Windsor or Structure Map or something like that. The reality is, if you're in a situation where you can't take one of these dependencies, you can build your own inversion of control container in about two dozen lines of code. And uh, I actually walk through that in my article. So if people are curious, they can just go read up on, uh, on it in the Loosen Up article. Okay. That's a great idea, James, because most people push back on this as too complex. Right. Like, honestly, Richard, it's two dozen lines of code. Fundamentally, what do you have? You have a hash table. The hash table has a bunch of interfaces versus concrete types. So in the very simple container that you construct yourself, the, I call it the do-it-yourself uh, do container, all you do is when your application starts up in your sub-main or your public static void main method, if you're doing C-sharp, you just construct all the types, uh, construct all the dependencies, build everything, throw them into the hash table, and then at runtime, you ask for, hey, I need an iCustomer service, and it looks it up in the hash table and passes it back to you. Full-fledged containers can do much more than that and will walk dependency chains for you, but 90% of what they supply, you can write yourself. And it's and really quite straightforward. And if you understand that, you then can buy into and understand what these other containers are and actually be in a position to evaluate, okay, should I go with Spring.net? Should I go with Structure Map? Should I go with Windsor? Should I go with Unity? Which inversion of control container is right for me? All right, I just heard some heads spinning out there because you just threw out a whole bunch of products <laughs> that nobody really knows what they do. Let's start with, uh, I don't know, start with whichever one you want to start with, but what are we talking about when we're looking at these frameworks? So they are all inversion control containers. Uh, Spring.net is a port of the Spring framework from Java. A very standard Java architecture is Spring for inversion control and Hibernate for object-relational mapping. You can do the same thing on the .NET side of things. Right, and we had Mark Pollack on last year, or Pollack, on last year talking about Spring.net. So Spring is one, one one container. Windsor, Castle Windsor is another one. It's part of the Castle project, and it's my personal favorite. The main advantage of Windsor, from what I've seen over Spring, is Windsor has a lot more flexibility in configuration. 
Uh, Spring tends to be a lot more verbose, a lot of XML setup. That might have changed in the last year or so since last I looked at it. But it historically has been rife with XML. You just have to big XML files and configure all your types and how they all hook together. Whereas Windsor, you can do that, but you've got a lot more options in terms of configuration, such as configuring it through a scripting language, configuring it in code. Uh, Craig Newert uh, created uh, Fluent Interface, which is now part of the latest build of Castle. So you can actually string things together. The Fluent Interface idea actually came from Jeremy Miller and StructureMap. So with structure map, Jeremy's whole point was I can actually, rather than going into XML and configuring it in XML, I can actually go ahead and build it up saying object factory, here is, for this interface, this is the concrete implementation. And so you just, you end up using generics to assemble, to define what your component structures are. So each of them has, they're all in version control containers. Uh, they are often part of a larger piece, such as Windsor is part of the Castle project. So Windsor's got very good hooks into Castle Monorail and Castle Active Record and the other projects that are part of the Castle umbrella. Uh, Spring has its own pieces for building out applications. So it depends on the type of style of development you, you want to do. If you want a really lightweight framework, um, Spring.net, or Structure Map is a good one. Uh, Jeremy's got some really good ideas in that. And then Unity is Microsoft's play into this space. They put, uh, if people have probably heard of Object Builder, Object Builder is a object construction framework, but doesn't supply inversion control. Unity builds on top of Object Builder and is a full-fledged object uh, inversion of control container. Interesting. And, and this is a Coplex project from the Pattern and Practices team, right? Yes. Yeah, Chris Tavares of the Patterns and Practices group was the lead on it. Uh, very bright guy. Uh, it's got a bit of a different flavor to it than, than Windsor does, but they all fundamentally do the same thing, is figure out your dependency structure at runtime, uh, which allows you to be very flexible. It's like The nice thing about it is... You've got, let's say I've got uh, some sort of data access component, and I want to find out every time the database is touched. Well, I could go in there and start hardwiring in some logging components, or the other thing I can do is I can create a brand new component called a logging data access component. Right. It internally has the real data access component, just an I, another iData access, with your inversion of control container, you just wrap it. You use uh, the decorator pattern to, when you call into the iData access component, you actually get an auditing data or a logging data access component, which does the logging, and then that just delegates through to the actual data access component. So you can actually implement logging without actually modifying the original data access component, which dramatically reduces the chances of introducing a bug into your system because you're not editing the original code. It's the whole idea that the open-close principle, that classes should be open for extension but closed for modification. So you don't want to open up a code file, but you want to be able to extend it, either by deriving a class or using composition 
to introduce new functionality, new behavior into the system while not modifying existing working behavior. This is what AOP, aspect-oriented programming, is really all about, isn't it? Is that you, you want to keep sort of the, the goo where you can hook these things that happen in a separate place in your code, staying out of your business logic code. That's right. It's, it's uh, aspect-oriented programming. It's a bit of a different flavor. It's about, a bit about orthogonality. It's, you have orthogonal concerns. Logging is different from data access. Let's define that big word, shall we? <laughs> orthogonality, it just, it, or something being orthogonal just means at right angles. So they're completely separate concerns. At right angles? So, Right-angled. So it, one, doing something on one axis doesn't affect the other axis. If you've got an XY coordinates, you can move up and down your Y axis without affecting what your X coordinate is. So you're just talking totally decoupled. That's what that means? You're just decoupling your code. Okay. So the idea of aspect-oriented programming is to be able to implement an auditing component. And rather than having to implement a customer auditing component and an orders auditing component and a foo auditing and a bar auditing component or all these different components, you implement one auditing component that then receives all calls and it can make decisions. It's a, it's a very different style of programming and there are aspect-oriented programming frameworks. Inversion control containers are often an ingredient in getting there. You don't need to use AOP to when you're doing inversion of control, though. They're two separate but related concepts. One of the frustrations I have with this technology, James, is that every example I get cited is about logging. Can I? Can we get come up with a story that's more complicated, like how I could fix something really challenging inside of an app using this technique? Uh, actually, I used this in one, uh, in one of my customers' applications. They needed to have validation rules. So my service component needed a bunch of validation rules for what a valid purchase order was. Okay. So rather than traditionally, you have this big, ugly if block, if, then, else, switch block, and every time you need to add in a new rule, you add something else into this big, gory validate method. Which is also a very test-resistant chunk of code. Like, it takes a lot of tests to deal with that huge switch block. Exactly. And the interactions between the different branches of the ifs and switches, and it just gets unwieldy very quickly. Right. What I did instead is my service component depends on a, an array of validation components. Those validation components get injected at runtime. So if I need to, so in my configuration, I just have a list of all my validation components. And they are very simple. They are, does the purchase order have a date? Does the, per, is the purchase order over a certain amount? Is the purchase order to a particular customer? It's, it's very simple rules about what a valid purchase order looks like. Those can be tested independently very easily. Right. The service then just iterates through whatever collection it's given. And it's probably using some kind of data structure to figure out what rules I need to apply to what Data structures. That's right. So it's it's a very simple... I need to add a new rule. I just create a new iValidation rule, configure it in my version control container, and next time the application comes up, it's got it. I don't need to go through a lot of contortions to 
tested and to make sure all the various branches of logic are working, it's a very simple matter of just adding this new validation rule. I'm not going to break the existing ones. If for some reason I do discover a problem with an existing validation rule or I want to, I could use it for promotions. Right. So I've got a promotion that's only good for a certain amount of time. I need to disable it, turn it off. It's a matter of just commenting out a line of code. Uh, you can do this in an XML configuration file. You can do it in a separate assembly that configures the application. There's a variety of ways of doing it, but it's very easy to dynamically add and remove pieces to your application without affecting the overall structure. Now, the, and initially I thought, I was about to come at you and say, should I just be using a rules engine for this? And I've answered my own question just thinking about what you're saying here, which is that the challenge I have with the rules engine is while I avoid writing code, I'm limited to the creativity of the rules engine author. And That's you're right. giving me a model here where I still get to write code, but without the punishment of the big switch where it's a bear to test and it's likely I can break things, here I still get to write the code the way I want to write it, but I'm injecting it into the system in a way that doesn't endanger the existing system. That's exactly mm. right, Richard. Yep. And sometimes a rules engine is the right answer. Okay. But sometimes it's not. It's it's a matter of looking at the application you're trying to create, uh, the intended end users. If oftentimes it's programmers who are the ones writing the rules, right? And testing and testing it. There, you're probably going to be much more comfortable working in C sharp, writing unit tests around it. If you do need to hand it off to an end business user to configure and write the rules, in that case, then Commercial rules engines do have front-end editors and all the other pieces that go along with it. So you have to look at the application you're writing and the end-user base and figure out what is going to be best for your client. But the point is that you don't need to whip out a big rules engine just because you've got a few validation rules or you need to make your system configurable. Yeah, I just uh, I like the fact that I don't have to take things apart in, in this respect. The only thing, one of the other concerns I have about this is this must make code reading more challenging. Like bringing somebody new into a project, they've got to really, like understanding the flow of your program is not easy now. Yes and no. It's it's not as easy because it's not as linear and people have might not have seen it before. As soon as you have worked with this type of system, though, it becomes second nature. You see a block of code in your, like, in your service component, it'll say for each validation rule in the validation rules collection that was injected, rule.validate. So that's easy enough to follow along. Your next step is just to find out everybody who implements the iValidation rule interface. And if you're working with uh, a tool like most people who are doing test-driven development use ReSharper, it's a single keystroke to say, find me all implementers of this interface. Right, And there's other tools that will do this. So it does require, and that's one of the reasons that people don't kind of understand the value of a tool like ReSharper until, they've, until they start working in these flexible systems and the ability to navigate through your code base easily and find all implementing types, go to drive types, uh, navigate inheritance hierarchies very quickly, but you don't kind of see the, the value in it. Yeah, you know what? You switched tools up. Like you, when we first were starting this conversation, you said, "Okay, I want to insert this capability in all these classes." My first thought was, "Okay, I'm going to make friends with the find, right?" And I'm searching code. Now you're talking more about 
doing that same task, but doing it from an object browsing point of view. Yes. So there, there's the, on the one hand, you need to have things happen at runtime. You need to have actual code constructed and objects supplied. On the other hand, as a programmer, you need to be able to efficiently navigate your code base and figure out what the heck is going on. Right. What are all the possible rules that could be injected here? Um, what are the implementers of the interfaces? Who overrides these methods? In that case, you do need a, a tool like ReSharper is invaluable because it can answer those questions very quickly and very efficiently with just a few keystrokes. You're listening to .NET Rocks from .NET Rocks.com. This is Carl. I have a message from our sponsor, Telerik, who wants you to know about the best way to learn using new dev tools and technologies. Well, is it reading manuals, watching videos, playing with sample code? How about all of the above? So Telerik recently launched their new interactive trainer tool to help you effectively learn all the Telerik products in your own pace. The Telerik trainer is a slick WPF app that combines a video player with synchronized highlights, a table of contents for topical navigation, and a context-sensitive code launcher. While playing the narrated videos, you'll see a code button light up at a relevant section. Click the button, and you'll open the respective file from the provided project directly into Visual Studio. No more searching for code while watching a training video. This is indeed innovation in training. They're always releasing new tutorials for all the Telerik products, so don't waste any more time and download this amazing new training tool now at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K. And as you know, it, when it comes to developer tools, it's not just about great products, but also about reliable support and effective training materials, and that's exactly what our friends at Telerik have done. Check it out. Now let's get back to the show. Let's um can we talk a little bit about some of the particulars of Windsor and in particularly the uh the Windsor and the microkernel or maybe we could start with Windsor. What what is oh, sure. the what is the experience of of using this tool? Is this where you is this where you start your development at Windsor or uh you know what what is what tell just tell, tell walk us through a little bit of the the process of using it. Okay. Starting Right off the bat, with the full-fledged inversion and control container, can be very daunting. Uh, I would, and all the services that it offers can be quite confusing. I would recommend, I'd, the way I started, was to just create a very simple inversion and control container. The sort of do-it-yourself, use a hash table. You get the core concepts, and it's much easier to follow the flow of what's going on. You can then later on, the nice thing about it is, later on you can just swap it out for a full-fledged inversion of control container like Windsor after the fact because everything is dependent on interfaces. So you would start by writing your own IOC container? I would. Well, I would take one like out of my article or off of Orin Eni's blog or there's a few people who have published very simple like two dozen line inversion of control containers mm -hmm. and just understand what they are doing before trying to tackle everything that Castle or Spring or some other framework does offer. Is it because you can see the code and you can step through it? That's right. And there's not that much code. Like, honestly, Carl, it's two dozen lines. Right. Uh, it's not hard to follow. You've got a hash table of interfaces versus concrete types or versus objects. But it's really the, it's the flow that you're really, that is new. It's the flow, it's the decoupling yeah. that is the biggest bang for the buck. The other features of an uh, inversion of control container are nice bells and whistles. 
but your biggest bang for the buck is the decoupling that you get, the flexibility in your architecture, which you can get out of a simple inversion control container. The other confusing part of a inversion control container, it, like they are just big. They offer a lot of different services, um, and so yeah, I, I just found it very difficult to kind of wrap my head around everything that it was doing at first. If I was going to start off a project now, I've used Windsor enough that I just drop it in right off the bat. Now, after you wrote in your own IOC or used used an existing one, um, would you recommend starting with a microkernel? Which is, by the way, uh, a smaller version of the full-blown container, right, in Windsor? Well, it's actually – so the idea of Windsor and microkernel is they go hand-in-hand. Hand. Microkernel is your core inversion of control piece. Okay. It's the engine. It's the guts of the system. Okay. What Windsor provides on top of that is all of the configuration. I see. So it isn't like a stripped-down version. It's really the core of it. No, it's not a stripped-down version. It's really – Windsor, you actually would want to start with Windsor, and then if you really need to, dive down into microkernel. Microkernel provides a lot more services than Windsor does. Windsor provides a facade over top, which does, which worries about reading XML config files. It will, that's also where you get, um, Orn implemented, uh, something called Binzer, which uses a language called Boo to configure <laughs> Windsor. Uh, there's a variety of different ways, uh, another Fellow I know, uh, Donald Beltram implemented Cinzer, which is a, which is a C sharp way to do it. Craig Newart implemented uh, Fluent Interface, which is part of the Windsor. So when you're dealing with microkernel, you're dealing with the really low level guts of an inversion of control container and configuring dependencies. That's much lower than most developers ever need to go. Right. Windsor provides that higher level abstraction to it, where you're most productive. So you'd start off okay. with Windsor. Where a good example was where, when I was doing this, um, the validation, so what I wanted to do is I wanted to say, hey, get me all components implementing the iValidation rule interface. Windsor at the time didn't have that, but it was in microkernel. So what I did is I dove down into microkernel, called the appropriate methods, and then jumped back up into Windsor. Since that time, Windsor's actually added the ability to, hey, get me all components, rather than just get me the one that implements the interface. So it's really going into microkernel is much more of a specialized. It's an exception. Do something really low level. Right. It sounds like an exception thing I would do. That's right. So traditionally, the way you've gotten into into Windsor is you would hammer out this big long uh, XML file, which specifies for this interface create this type. This type has these dependencies. Um, Here are the default values. You'd supply properties and values. This sounds very spring-like now. Hmm. It's very spring-like. They they both they used a similar mechanism. Uh, spring, uh, Windsor's XML configuration tended to be a bit more terse than Spring, from what I saw. Okay. But still, it's fundamentally XML, and it tends to be very verbose. Right. One Which is, really in theory, is things. a feature. This is about legibility, right? That's right. You get you tend to very quickly get lost in mounds and mounds of XML. Yeah, is one of the challenges with it. One of the, so that's traditionally the way you've configured Windsor. The recommended way to do it now is much more through Craig Newart's fluent interface approach, which he borrowed from Jeremy Miller's structure map, where you basically, in your C-sharp code, say, for this interface, here's the implementing component, and here are any of its default properties. So, for instance, if you had a GST calculator, 
one of its constructor properties might be a decimal amount indicating the current percentage of GST. Or you might have a data access component that would look it up in, inside of a table inside of your database, something like that. But there's different, so there's the XML route. Now you do much more do it through the fluent interface. The other yeah, nice I think thing it, this, the, it's, it's got to be really useful to have a good visualization component around seeing those relationships. Well, actually, you don't, the way they're design, things are going, you actually don't need that visualization component. One of the things that's been happening is from the Ruby on Rails side of the world, Rails is very big on convention over configuration. Right. So unless you're doing something really exceptional, do the thing that most people do. So right. don't make me have to specify my defaults. This has been re- very much baked into the uh, both into Structure Map and into into Windsor's Fluent Interface, where you can say, just go ahead and register all the controllers. So you're working with micro with uh, ASP.NET MVC. So right, find all things that implement iController and register them. Often when you're dealing with inversion control, you're just trying to decouple things. And so you will have uh, an administration controller and an iAdministration interface, iAdministration controller interface. You will have a home controller and an iHome controller. You will have a product controller and an iProducts controller. So whenever you have those pairs, you can just use convention over configuration, use the convention that your foo controller implements an ifoo interface right that's a given you just tell the windsor to go ahead and configure all these things it walks through all your types figures out the mappings you don't have to manually specify them that's cool you know I, and i think and i totally agree with you i still like the visualization angle on this of finding out where it's wrong that this is one i'm just getting a sense that when something goes wrong with this model, because it is so abstract and it's relatively tough to read through, it's got to be really challenging to debug. Well, you know, getting back to the AOP, the AOP part of it, I think that not only is better for testing, but also for debugging, I would think. I mean, the whole idea of an interceptor is to get a pre- and post-process uh, call on every, on any method. So, and, and this isn't a new concept, is it? This is something we were doing in remoting, isn't it? In terms of debugability, I've got, I've got an amusing story for you. So one of the things that StructureMap traditionally has done very well is environment, what Jeremy called environmental testing. What you could do is you can throw some attributes on certain methods, and when your inversion of control container started up, you could give it a command that would run through any of these test methods. And so what it would do is rather than when you try to call a component, when you try to create a component, it w- you'd realize that the connection string, database connection string was wrong. It would go ahead and test, can I go get to the database? Can I load up these customer records or these default, these name value tables? So that's sort of environment testing. It's like, can I get to the SMTP server and run through a bunch of code to do this? So Jeremy right. was v- very proud of this because it makes, that makes IOC a lot easier because you can basically say, hey, IOC startup. First thing you do is run through these smoke tests and make sure I've got a good connection string. I've got can talk, contact the SMTP server. Exchange is up. I can get to my message queues. Anything, any infrastructure pieces that you need. Jeremy was very proud of this, and he presented it at DevTeach Vancouver uh, just this past November. 
and uh, Oren was in the audience, who is a big Windsor fan. Yes. And Jeremy says, pointing to Oren, here's something, environmental testing, that Structure Map can do that Windsor can't. Oren whips out his laptop and madly starts hammering away. In the half hour remaining <laughs> of Jeremy's presentation, Oren taps me on the shoulder and he says, it's implemented, I'm just going to commit it now. That's so crazy. <laughs> Those guys are out of control. We are talking about Orenini, though. He is crazy. He's a great guy, but oh my gosh, he can he can code like there's no tomorrow. Yeah, the intensity level is unbelievable. Yeah, so in, in half an hour, he managed to implement one of Jeremy's favorite features. Do not so. challenge me. I will kill you. <laughs> I will bury you in code. <laughs> I will bury you in code. <laughs> That's something that I've seen as an ask on Unity, is some sort of visualization configuration component. In my own experience of using Windsor, I haven't really felt a great need for it. When you do get a configuration wrong, it will just say, can't find Im- implementation for iFoo. And you kind of look, and it's like, oh, I didn't supply anything there. Uh, you also get around with it with the convention over configuration, because most of the time, you just follow your naming conventions, and everything works. Uh, Oren was telling me about a uh, time on a project that he implemented, IOC in Windsor, where he just had everything set up. He had naming conventions of the developers, of the kind of dozen developers. He's the one that worried about all those infrastructure pieces. And uh, about he left the project. About a year later, he came back to it. They, he got a call from the project lead who had taken over, and they asked, oh, what's this configuration file that was doing the con- convention over configuration? And that they, they hadn't had to. They'd added new classes. They'd added new interfaces. And they hadn't had to really worry and under, understand what was going on because it was just doing the right thing. Yeah, I just worry about the just doing the right thing. Like, that's all well and fine until it isn't. And then how tough is it to diagnose? Absolutely, Richard. I, I, I fully agree. I think that you really need to understand why it's doing the right thing and how it's doing the right thing. But the fact that it just uh, the development team was able to be productive for a long time and yes, that knowledge should have been transferred, but it's a testament to the power of convention over configuration that things just worked out of the box. Uh, and honestly, when as I said, when something does go wrong, the containers are pretty good about saying, hey, I'm looking for, I'm trying to create component X. It has these dependencies, which have these other dependencies, and I don't have something for this, lo- an implementation for this logging component. And so it's pretty explicit as to what it's trying to construct and where things are going wrong. And it's, I haven't found a huge concern in terms of trying to create some visual, needing some visualization component. And as well, if the other side of the coin is if your interaction of components is getting so complex that you need to have a visualization component, you probably right. want to rethink your interaction of components. Overall, it's about keeping things simple, um, not having really tightly coupled meshes of objects. And if you do start having that, think about how you can slice and dice your architecture to reduce that coupling. The other nice thing is because you're dependent on interfaces or abstract base classes now, it's very, it's fairly straightforward to move code around and to break dependencies. You're not t- tightly coupled to any one component anymore. You can refactor your your overall architecture much more easily, uh, and hopefully you've got a good suite of tests around it, so you can ensure that the changes that you are making are not impacting the actual functioning of the application. Yeah, 
James, how easy is it to retrofit this sort of technology into an existing application? Ooh. Ouch. That is more challenging. I was going to say, that's fundamental, right? Because on one hand, I keep thinking, this should be easy. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, I can see where there'd be some really tough places to loosely cut decouple. That's a refactor hell right there, I would think. Well, the very first thing you want to do before you attempt this uh, is go read micro, Michael Feather's book, Working Effectively with Legacy Code. Michael Feather's, Working Effectively with Legacy Code. If you can get him on the show, he's a really great guy, has some fantastic ideas. I haven't actually had the pleasure of meeting him myself, but the that book is phenomenal because it gets you to rethink your architectures and how you assemble applications. Michael's entire point is that legacy code is any code that doesn't have tests around it. Interesting. doesn't matter whether it was written 20, co- 20 years ago hmm. or a week ago. If you don't have tests, you don't have the flexibility to change it. You don't have the confidence to change it because you don't know your test cycle so long. So the first thing that you want to do, if you have a tightly, if you have a tightly coupled application, the first thing that you want to do is get some tests around it. And Michael's book ex- helps you understand how to get tests into an, essentially an untestable code base. Once you've got tests in there, then you can start breaking your dependencies. You can start introducing inversion of control and dependency injection and definitely separating out your architecture, loosening the coupling to make it more flexible in the long run. But it is a multi-step process. I talked to a fellow who had a lot, had attempted this once before and it it didn't succeed for a variety of reasons. Um, we talked about some of the issues. He read Michael's book, read some other books that I recommended. We hashed through some of the how you'd approach this. And with about two months of hard work, this was, I think he said it was about 150,000 line code base and about a dozen developers. With about two months of work, they dramatically reduced the coupling. They had uh, one of their biggest challenges is they had singletons, throughout their application, which makes it very difficult to test. Anytime you have a singleton, it's a point of high coupling because typically singletons talk to other singletons, and if you want to test one component, you bring end up bringing along the entire application along with it. So we talked about how to remove this coupling, and yeah, it was about two months of hard work to decouple it, but he said it went from an application that they dreaded to work on to one that was a delight. Well, then there's an interesting point to this, which is, I mean, every code gets tested when you put it out into the field. It's just a question of whether you can control the testing and make sure the testing is comprehensive up front. The interesting reality here is once I have this suite of tests, I immediately know what the consequences of my change were, or rather the lack of consequence of my change. That's exactly it, Richard. You need to, in order to refactor your code, refactoring is about improving the quality of your code, improving the code's design without changing its functionality. In order to do that effectively, you need tests around it. You need unit tests, you need integration tests to ensure that when you do make a modification, when you do say, oh, this switch block is really ugly, can I put in the command pattern? Or this command pattern is really not doing much, a switch block would be much simpler. Going Doing the, that back and forth, how am I going to improve this code? You need those tests to ensure that you're not making any mistakes. And it's the reality that if you've got a good suite of tests, you basically make a change, you run your unit and integration tests, two minutes later, you've got a yay or an A, whether the changes broke anything. That's a lot better than traditionally of, okay, now I have to, I do 
a day's worth of changes, and then, oh, tomorrow's going to be devoted to testing, everybody dreads it, you walk through all the test cases, realize you broke something, it's a much longer feedback cycle. So you want nice, tight feedback cycles, which is what some, which is what these techniques do. And they all kind of dovetail into each other. To those people who say, this is too much code to write, I just need to get my business applications done and out the door, and I can do that, and it's been working for me, why should I totally invert my brain in the way that I, you know, the way that I write code? Why should I do this? Don't. Honestly. If what you're doing is working, if you're not having problems with coupling, uh, if, you've, if, if you're writing a lot of kind of fire-and-forget type applications with one-offs, they're never really touched again, are these techniques going to buy you a whole lot? I'd still do it this way, but I've had a lot of success in it. Right. If you're having problems where code, as code accretes in your code base, things are more and more difficult to change, it's worthwhile to start looking at these techniques. The sort of the ramp up time is a bit slower. Yeah. But one of the nice things is you maintain steady velocity because your code is very flexible and open to change. It's pretty much as easy to add a feature six months into a project as on day one. Do you ever find um, other products that people use sort of get in the way and interfere with, uh, with let's say, any inversion of control container? Maybe, uh, you know, I'm thinking of like CSLA.net, for example. I mean, it's just an application framework. Should that, that shouldn't really get in the way of anything that you're doing with that, should it? Uh, it depends on on the nature of the framework. Uh, a lot of inversion when you're dealing with inversion control, you're hiding away your dependencies. So if you've got the type of framework that kind of <laughs> inserts its tentacles through it through it, your application, that can make things a lot more challenging. Lots of factories and things like that. That's right. Uh, another exa- classic example that makes uh, inversion of control a bit more difficult uh, and testing more difficult is ASP.NET the yeah. classic ASP.NET, because you've got, as part of your page, you've got a request response and server variables hanging off of it. You need a full ASP.NET pipeline spun up and running in order to exercise these things. So some, often that will, you have to do different things. Uh, JP, is, uh, JP Boodoo has talked right. a lot about the model view presenter pattern right. in ASP.NET, and that's one way to use inversion control inside of ASP.NET applications. The MVC framework, obviously, is going to help too, right? That's right. Yeah, the MVC framework for Microsoft bakes in testability, bakes in inversion control. One of the watershed moments was when Scott Guthrie presented it at the Alt.NET Austin conference last October, and he said, insert whatever inversion control container you want. (laughs) We're open for business. (laughs) So he demonstrated, like you can, I've seen examples with Windsor, uh, with Spring.net, I've seen it with Unity. Bring whatever you want and come play. So uh, the ASP.NET MVC team is really getting it in terms of what developers need, the ability to select the frameworks that are going to be most effective for them, select and also work with the frameworks that are already existing in their organizations. Well, there you go. If you were looking for a reason to get into the MVC framework and thought it was just a, a kind of a waste of time, now you now you know. Yeah, no, if you're going to be doing ASP.NET MVC, you should be thinking about inversion of control. So these are they good go hand software hand. techniques that help you build better software that's more highly cohesive, that's loosely coupled, uh, and 
helps you ensure a single responsibility and separation concern. So lots of good, solid software engineering ideas in there. Uh, inversion control is one way to get there. We're just about out of time. Is there anything left that you want to uh, call out or shout out? We've got a bunch of links we'll put up on the show. Uh, links to your, to your blog, to uh, P. Saki. You want to talk about that for a minute? Oh, sure. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, pronounced Saki. P-S-A-K-E. It's a Silent P. make tool in the flavor of rake or bake. Uh, so rake is ruby, make using ruby, bake is make using boo. So it's the whole idea is creating build scripts, and rather than using Nant or MS Build, which are very heavily XML-based, uh, you can use PowerShell. Hmm. So I created this little framework uh, called Saki, that I just released last week, and it orchestrates your entire build for you. Nice. Uh, you write PowerShell scripts, you divide things into tasks, so you say, okay, this, this represents my build. This represents my deployment steps. This represents where I zip up everything into an archive package. And then you specify dependencies, just as you would in NANT or MS Build, but it's all PowerShell. So you don't have any of the XML angle bracket tasks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's very concise, one of the things that I like about it over something like Rake or Bake is because Rake and Bake are in higher-level languages, you always have to implement these adapters or bridges. So you want to call MS Build, you have to write a little function that then knows how to call, how to spin up a command line and call MS Build with the appropriate command line parameters. Same thing with NAND. You have to write a .NET object that will interpret the XML angle brackets and create the appropriate command line and run it and receive the response back and do all of the error handling for you. Because Saki is written in PowerShell, it's a scripting language. It all comes along for free. So it it is an idea that's been floating in my head for a few months. I decided, okay, I'm going to just try to write this. Um, and, And it took me about half a day to throw it all together. It ended up being, because PowerShell gives you so much out of the box, it ended up being... 182 lines of code, including comments. That's all. Wow. That's all. And in terms of, if you strip out all the comments, uh, it's 100 lines of code Hmm. to write a build system in PowerShell, (laughs) which I thought thought was pretty neat. Uh, There's some interesting hacks in there in terms of making things. Really what I was doing is I was using PowerShell to write a domain-specific language around building. Uh, And there's some, I did some interesting things in terms of making the syntax nice and clean. Uh, so I encourage people, we'll put the link in the, into the show notes. Have a look, see if it tickles your fancy, uh, if it's going to solve some of your problems. One of the nice things about it is you don't have to drop NAT or MS Build if that, that's what you're using. If you just want to use Saki to orchestrate, okay, run the NAT build, run run the build through the solution. Now, here's my compile step. Uh, here's my zip steps. Here's how I test things. Here's how I deploy to a server. The other great thing about PowerShell is it's got this whole PowerShell provider model. So there are providers for Active Directory, for Exchange. There's um, scripts being written around Exchange administration. IIS7 has PowerShell scripts and PowerShell commandlets for it. So Microsoft is investing heavily in PowerShell. So then my thought is that you can not only build your application, test your application, but you'll also be able to deploy your application, punch keys into the registry, manipulate IIS, all from within a common scripting environment. 
using scripting commands that you'd use on the command line anyways. Um, just to call out those URLs, they are Shrinksterized. So Shrinkster.com slash Z-U-R is your announcement for Saki. And the project is at Z-U-Q. Also, uh, you're, you're, you also, uh, I also noticed this ultimate developer rig, Kovacs edition at shrinkster.com slash ZV4. Is that just like the, the biggest, baddest macho machine you can possibly, uh, think of? What is that all about? Well, what I did is, uh, I unfortunately had my main rig die. The motherboard just gave up the ghost and stopped working. I hate and when that happens. I hate that. I, it, it's <laughs> bad. And the, the problem with it was it was an AMD 939 platform. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but... I have one AMD, here. I have that. Yeah. AMD has moved over completely to AM2. Yes. So you cannot get 939 uh, motherboards anymore. Yeah, they're essentially dead. Great. Yep. That's so good that to know. meant that the processor I had wouldn't work on AM2. The RAM I had wouldn't work on AM2. So, like, pretty much all the components I had, it, it was a new rig. Pretty much so done. I, yeah, I was done. Uh, so I took a look at Jeff Atwood's build for Scott Hanselman, all right, the yeah. ultimate developer rig he built, and uh, looked at the components that were available at the time, did some research, did some investigation, updated some things, and built out my own system. And I've uh, been very happy with it. It's uh, running really well. Uh, getting, uh, I was just... On stock components, uh, it gets a Windows Experience index of 5.9. Nice. Which I was very happy of, ha- happy with. I'm doing a lot more podcasting and screencasting these days as well. So the additional speed, it would typically, I can, uh, Camtasia keeps all four processors humming along quite smoothly, and I can produce a Camtasia video in about the same time as it takes to play it. Nice. So I can actually encode it same, at at uh, real-time speed, which is pretty cool. That is cool. All right, James, thanks. The, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your uh, your your passion, and, and more importantly, you're a very good explainer. You're a very good teacher. You're very clear well, you. and concise, and, and I know the listeners appreciate that as much as we do. Sounds like we've got some DNR TVs in our future. Absolutely. We can yeah. definitely talk about it. Well, thank you guys for having me on, and happy Canada Day to you both. <laughs> Excellent. Watch out for moose. Nice. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, we're not in Sweden, which have the drunken moose. <laughs> yeah, okay. If you've never read about that, Google it. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a-